0: Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your goodness toward us. Lord, the more we get to know you, the more we love you, and the more we want to know you. And so tonight, speak to our hearts, Lord, as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. A good fireworks demonstration always ends with a grand finale. That final burst of sparkles and streamers and that final flurry of fire sent off into the sky. This is how I view the last section of the Psalms. It's the symphony's crescendo. It's the late-inning rally. It's the movie's climax. As you'll see, much is packed into this fifth and final book of Psalms. Psalm 107 is a song of Exodus, Of course, when we think of Exodus, we think of the Hebrews' exit from Egypt. But Scripture speaks of four exits. In 1445 B.C., Moses led the Hebrew slaves out of Egypt. That was one exit. In 535 B.C., Zerubbabel led the Jewish captives back from Babylon to the land of Judah. Another exit. In the last days, Jews who have been scattered all over the world will be regathered to their ancient homeland. A third exit. We have the privilege of watching that exit take place in our own lifetime as Jews continue to flow back to the Holy Land. The last exodus depicted in this psalm is figurative. It's our exit. The exit that Jesus Christ has worked on our behalf to bring us out of a life of sin into a life of His love and His holiness. The psalm begins... Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. God's mercies are so expensive. They're so expansive. They can't be worked off. They could never be repaid. The redeemed have only one obligation, and that's to say so. That's to let other people know of the goodness that God has worked on our behalf. If God has rescued you from the slavery of sin, all he asks you in return is to speak up, to say so, to let his mercies be known. It's time we went public with our praise and told somebody. There are five movements in Psalm 107. In verses 1 through 9, God delivers from the heat of the wilderness. In verses 10 through 16, he delivers from the ball and chain of imprisonment. In verses 17 to 22, God delivers the foolish man from his own mistakes. Aren't we glad? In verses 23 through 32, he delivers from the storms at sea. And in verses 33 to 42, God delivers the farmer from periods of barrenness. It's a wonderful psalm. It's a psalm of deliverance. Psalm 108 is the composite of two previous psalms. Verses 1 through 5 are from Psalm 57, and verses 6 through 13 are from Psalm 60. The first psalm was written while David was on the run from Saul. The second of those psalms was written after Saul had died and David had become king. And when you put the two psalms together, it's kind of neat because it shows you just how far the Lord had brought David. Psalm 109 was also written by David with a dagger in his back. Nothing hurts more than to be victim of a betrayal. And that's exactly what had happened to David. The circumstances are unsure. They're not mentioned. But David does do a great job of expounding his feelings. In verse 3, he tells us, They have also surrounded me with words of hatred. And fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are my accusers. But I give myself to prayer. Ever felt that way? In return for my love, I've been mistreated. I've been accused. And David takes it to the Lord. The prayer that David prays, though, in the rest of this psalm, asks God to judge his enemies and to have mercy on him. In fact, David gets rather vicious in verse 8. He says, let his days be few, speaking of his enemy. Let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless. Let his wife be a widow. Let his children continually be vagabonds. Come on, David. (laughs) Let them beg. Let the creditor seize all that he has. (laughs) And he just really lays it on him. As Christians understand, we've been called to a higher standard than even David. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus said to his disciples, both at the time and now, Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who spitefully use you and persecute you. You and I are to fight evil with good. Jesus expects more from us than He did the Old Testament saints because He has put His love in our hearts. He's made it our nature to love through His Holy Spirit. The Old Testament saints didn't have those capabilities, and therefore more is required of us. Psalm 110 was penned by David and is prophetic of the son or descendant of David, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In fact, Psalm 110 is the most often quoted psalm in the New Testament. Verse 1 alone is quoted seven times by the New Testament authors. It says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. In fact, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus quoted this verse to prove his deity. You remember, David was king. And since no one was superior to the king but God... Who was God addressing when he said, the Lord Jehovah said to David's Lord? In other words, God had to be talking to God. And that would be impossible or that would be possible only if the Messiah was both God and man. And of course, that is exactly how the New Testament depicts the nature of Jesus. He was fully God and yet he was fully man. Psalm 110 portrays the Messiah's position in the heavens, verses 1 and 2. His priesthood in the temple, verses 3 and 4, that he was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then it depicts his purging of the earth in judgment in verses 5 through 7. Psalms 111 and 112 are similar in content and construction. Both Psalms have 10 verses. The first eight verses of both psalms are a couplet. The last two verses of both psalms form a triplet, which means that each psalm then has 22 lines. And each line starts with one of the succeeding letters, the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Thus, both psalms 111 and 112 are acrostics in the Hebrew language. Psalm 111 describes the person of the Lord. Psalm 112, the people of the Lord. Some of the things mentioned of God's person, He is faithful, He is true, He is gracious, He is full of compassion. And everything said about God should also be true of His people. God is the sun, we are the moon, we are to reflect His light, and thus the believer in Psalm 112 is to be a reflection Of the God in Psalm 111. Psalm 113 paints for us, or begins to paint for us, a dramatic picture of the most important night in the history of the world. That night was April the 10th, 32 AD, for that was the evening prior to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the event that literally changed the world. On that night, Jesus and his disciples celebrated the Jewish Passover. You remember Matthew 26 verse 30 tells us that at the conclusion of the meal, Jesus and company sang a hymn. And the songs that they sung that night were Psalms 113 through 118. What the Hebrews called the Hallel Psalms. Hallel means praise. But these Psalms were not just praise, they were also prophecy. For many of the lines that Jesus sung that night were fulfilled in the events that took place the following day. Verse 3 of Psalm 113 tells us, From the rising of the sun to its going down, the name of the Lord is to be praised. I love that. As the earth rotates into the light of the sun, every city, every country should greet the new day with praise and thanksgiving to God. Think of it. On a given day, as the sun begins to rise in the east, Jesus is praised in secret gatherings of believers in China hiding from the communist government. He's then praised in the thatched huts of India as the sun rises over that great country. Even a couple of believers churches there that Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain has helped to sponsor. As the sun continues across the sky, the cathedrals of Europe erupt in praise. Finally, you and I here in Georgia praise the Lord. Then the cowboys in Texas and the surfers in California. And finally, the Eskimos in Alaska all join in and praise the Lord as we start a new day all over again. As the sun travels across the sky, it's followed by a worldwide wave of praise. Psalm 114 demonstrates how God engineered nature to bring the Hebrews out of Egypt. And in the psalm, he mentions not only the parting of the Red Sea, but also that of the Jordan River. And he sort of sums up the psalm in verse 7. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord. Psalm 115 was probably written in response to the taunts of the Assyrians. You remember history tells us that the Assyrians were masters of propaganda. In fact, Adolf Hitler designed aspects of his propaganda machine by borrowing ideas from the ancient Assyrians. When the Assyrian army camped outside Jerusalem, they didn't waste any time On a battle, they didn't want to waste any resources. In fact, they wanted to avoid a prolonged siege. And so that's why King Sennacherib tried to intimidate them and threaten them. And so he sent spokesmen to bully the Jews into surrender. Psalm 115 is probably Hezekiah or even Isaiah's response to a serious threats. Notice verses 2 and 3. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. Always remember that. God does whatever He pleases. Hey, God is God. He's not applying for the job. God does whatever, whenever, wherever, and forever. The psalmist compares God to the idols of the Gentiles. Verse 5, they have mouths but they do not speak. They also have eyes that can't see, ears that can't hear, noses that can't smell, hands that can't touch, feet that won't walk. And this is the insanity of idolatry. How can my creation be a God greater than me? But here's the explanation for idolatry. Verse 8. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. You see, an idol is a reflection of its creator. It's man's notion of what he would be if he were perfect. An idol, in essence, is an ideal. It's an exalted version of its maker. That's why idolatry is the epitome of self-worship. And this is why you and I need to be careful of thinking this thought. Well, if I were God, I would do this or I would do that. You see, that's idolatry. True worship begins with the realization, I am not God. His ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. His ways are higher than my ways and his thoughts are higher than my ways. Idolatry fashions a God in my own image, whereas true faith is my willingness to conform into the image of the one true God. Idolatry makes up its own rules, whereas real worship comes to God on his terms. Be careful of saying, if I were God, you're not, you won't be. We're glad. True faith Begins by saying, God is higher than me. Let God be God. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 116 verse 3 tells us, The pains of death surrounded me, and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Imagine Jesus singing those words as he left the upper room that night and walked to the garden of Gethsemane. How appropriate they were for his own travail and his own trial. Later that night in great agony, Jesus would pray pretty much this very same prayer. Verse 9 reveals the psalmist's trust in God. Though death had him surrounded, he's adamant, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And Jesus too was sure that he would be resurrected, that God would deliver his soul from death. Notice also verse 15. It's a wonderful verse. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. You see, the resurrection of Jesus has transformed death from an enemy into a friend. The grim reaper is now our transport to glory. Death is no longer a tombstone. For those of us who know Christ, it's now a stepping stone. It's been said, what the caterpillar calls the end of life the Master calls a butterfly. For a Christian, death is not the end. It's a glorious new beginning. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Of the one hundred, excuse me, of the one thousand one hundred and eighty nine chapters in the Bible, Psalm 117 is the middle chapter. It's also the shortest chapter in the Bible. And maybe that's the reason my dad chose to read us Psalm 117 whenever it was his turn to tuck my brother and I into bed at night. You see, dad worked hard. And by Wednesday night, he was tired. But mom was at choir practice. And so he had to tuck us in. And of course, our custom was was to read the Bible before we went to bed. And so every Wednesday night, dad would put us in bed, pull the sheets up over our chest tuck us in give us a kiss and say all right boys we're going to read the bible the shortest chapter in the bible psalm 117 he opened his bible and then he would hurriedly say praise the lord all you nations praise him all you people for his merciful kindness is great toward us and the truth of the lord endureth forever praise ye the lord good night boys i was an adult before I realized that goodnight boys wasn't part of the text. (laughs) But you know what? At least my dad read me God's word. And because of his faithfulness, I can quote Psalm 117, even though I can't quote it very slowly. I always have to quote it quickly. (laughs) But I can quote it because he read me God's word. And I trust you dads, are reading your kids God's word. Psalm 118 is the last of the Hillel Psalms, and it is especially prophetic of Jesus. It follows his final steps from Gethsemane to Gabbatha to Golgotha, all the way to glory. Verses 5 through 7 could have been prayed in the garden of Gethsemane, while verses 8 and 9 could have been prayed while Jesus stood at Gabbath, a Pilate's judgment hall. Of the 31,173 verses in the Bible, verse 8 is the middle verse. And notice the message God plants right in the heart of his word. Verse 8, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Please don't put your confidence in me. Trust me, if you hang around here long enough, I'll let you down. I'll disappoint you. All men will. Don't trust in man. Put your confidence in God. Verse 8 to me is the Bible in a nutshell. The middle verse. Verses 10 through 21 could have been prayed by Jesus at Golgotha or on the cross. Verse 11, they surrounded me. Verse 13, you pushed me violently. But notice the faith of our Lord in verse 17. I shall not die, but live. Finally, in verses 22 through 29, we see the Lord Jesus in glory. Verse 22 is quoted often in the New Testament. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And it draws on a Hebrew legend. You see, when the temple was constructed, the first stone that came from the quarry didn't meet the specifications. It looked odd. And so the workers pushed it aside, actually rolled it over the cliff. But as the building neared its completion, the builders were looking for the cornerstone. And they were shocked to realize the cornerstone for the temple was that first stone that they had rolled away and had rejected. This was the Jewish, Jewish reaction Or this will be the Jewish reaction when they realize that they've rejected their Messiah because Jesus didn't meet their specifications. They pushed away the cornerstone. But guess what? That cornerstone has become the foundation stone for a new building, which is what? It's the church. And so the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone of the new temple, the church of Jesus Christ. Verses 25 and 26 were quoted by the crowd that welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem. Save now, or literally, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was the cry on the Mount of Olives at his triumphant entry. The Jews hoped that Jesus would save them, but not from sin. They wanted a salvation from Roman rule. Jesus' ambitions were spiritual, though, rather than political. The cornerstone didn't meet their specifications. And that's why the builders of Judaism rejected him. And that's why later that week, Jesus stood again on top of the Mount of Olives. And he looked out over the city of Jerusalem and he wept. For he knew that their day had come. And yet they had failed to see it. Jesus said, you shall not see me anymore till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when Jesus does come in power and glory, the second time, the same cry will welcome him just as it did the first time. Years ago in England, there was a custom allowing a criminal the opportunity to read a psalm before his execution. And when George Wishart came to the gallows, he chose as his psalm Psalm 119. George Wishart was smart. He knew that Psalm 119 was the longest Psalm and the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses. And the story goes that two thirds through his reading of Psalm 119, a pardon arrived ordering George Wishart's freedom. And as it turned out, his knowledge of the Bible literally saved his life. If he had chosen Psalm 117, man, he'd have been dead meat. (laughs) Especially if my dad had been reading it. But George Wishart is not the only man whose life has been saved by Psalm 119. For many a man has been saved from sin through Psalm 119. Not its length, mind you, but its content. For Psalm 119 is the Bible on the Bible. It's all about God's Word. At least 10 different synonyms are used for the Scriptures in this chapter. It's called the law, the way, the precepts, the testimony, the word, the commandments, the judgments, the sayings, the statutes, the truth. The Bible is all of that. Psalm 119 is also an acrostic. It's divided into 22 sections. Eight verses in each section. And with each section, we have the beginning. It begins with a succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. You know, this form of psalm made it very easy to memorize. And for the ancient Hebrews, that was very important because they put to memory many of these wonderful psalms. Here are a few of my favorite excerpts from Psalm 119. Verse 9 poses an intriguing question. How can a young man cleanse his way? it doesn't ask, how can a little child cleanse his way? Nor does it ask, how can a grandpa cleanse his way? I mean, little kids and grandpas aren't known as notorious sinners, but young men, oh boy. Adolescent males are cocky. They're hot-headed, they're hormonal, they're reckless, they're stubborn, they're impulsive. If you can cleanse the way of a young man, you can cleanse anybody's way. And what performs that cleansing? Notice the psalmist says, by taking heed according to your word. You see, only this book has the power to renew a mind, to transform a character, to create a new outlook, to break old habits, to produce a sensitivity of heart to spawn self-discipline. Only this book has the power to develop faith in the heart of a young man or a young woman or an old man or an old woman. Only this book. Trust me, there are a thousand shortcuts. But if you really want to get it, if you really want faith to grow in your heart, if you want to build permanent, lasting roots to your relationship with Jesus Christ, there's only one hope. And that's to apply yourself to this book. Notice 2 verse 11. We're told your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Man, let the Bible permeate your life. Apply it to every area. And it will immunize you from sin. Verse 24 says, your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. Let me save you a few bucks, at least the going rate for a counselor. If you'll set your mind and heart on God's word and apply it to your life, your need for other counselors will dissipate. This word will be your counselor. Verse 89 says of the scriptures, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Hey, men can attack this book, but their assaults are impotent. God's word is forever. God's word can never be destroyed. The French infidel Voltaire boasted, In 50 years, I'll have this book in the morgue. 50 years later, Voltaire was dead. And the Geneva Bible Society was using his house to store their inventory of Bibles. Notice verse one hundred and sixty. The entirety of your word is true. Guys, all 66 books, all 1,189 chapters, every one of the 31,173 verses are all infallible and inerrant and completely trustworthy. You can take this book to the bank. This is the solid rock. This is the foundation for your faith. To simplify matters and to avoid confusion, the Almighty has always designated one place on earth where man might know that he can meet with God. Today, that place is in Jesus Christ. That's the one place on earth where you can find God in the person of Jesus Christ. But in Old Testament times, it was the temple in Jerusalem. And the next 15 psalms... Psalm 120 through 134 are called the Songs of Ascent, and they were sung by the Hebrews as they journeyed to the temple in Jerusalem for their annual feasts. There are two reasons why they're called the Songs of Ascent. First, Jerusalem sat in the mountains. It was elevated. To reach Jerusalem from any destination required a climb, but second, The journey to Jerusalem was always a lift. You left behind your daily grind. You entered into the presence of God. Worship is always an ascending experience. Of course, we as Christians are also on a pilgrimage. We're on our way to Jerusalem. Not the old Jerusalem, but the new Jerusalem. The heavenly city. And as we grow, I hope we're ascending. I hope we're growing. In our relationship with Jesus. I hope we're getting to know God. Becoming more like Him. Sharing Him with others. This kind of life is always a move upwards. In Psalm 120, the psalmist is concerned with lying lips. And sadly, on occasion, the pilgrimage to Jerusalem became an opportunity for people to gossip about one another. You know, they'd just seen each other not been maybe a year or so since they'd seen each other. So all back together again. And, oh, what's so-and-so doing? And what's so-and-so doing? And, and some lying lips can get going and some gossip can occur. I think it's also true that this can happen at a church function as well. We get together. And we say things we shouldn't. Let's be on guard not to let one word of gossip slip from our lips. In Psalm 121, the psalmist is confident that the Lord will preserve him from harm as he makes his way to Jerusalem. You see, often the trek to Jerusalem crossed some treacherous terrain. On our trips to Jerusalem, we go from Jericho to Jerusalem along the pilgrim's path. It's the narrow road that hugs the mountains. It's the same road that the pilgrims took up to Jerusalem. And as we drive along this road, man, there are places on the road where the tires of the bus come within inches of slipping over the ledge and sending the whole bus down the hundreds of feet into the ravine below. You kind of look over the edge and you get a little antsy and hope that Israeli bus driver knows what he's doing. The pilgrim knew the danger, but he trusted in God. He knew the Lord would deliver him and get him to Jerusalem safely. Verses 3 and 4 tell us, He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. I love it. God never dozes off at the wheel. He never falls asleep on the job. He is faithful to watch over us always. Psalm 122 begins, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Are you excited when the alarm clock goes off on Sunday morning? And you have the opportunity to get up and come to church and worship the Lord. Are you glad when that alarm clock says to you, let us go into the house of the Lord? I hope you are. In verse 3, the psalmist has his destination in mind. He says, Jerusalem is built as a city that is compacted together. One of the interesting things that you see when you get to Jerusalem is that the area of the old city, it totals just one square mile. It's, it's, it's kind of tiny. It's all packed in together. It's all very close quarters. Verse 6 says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. The word Jerusalem means city of peace, but perhaps no city has failed so miserably to live up to its name. More wars have been fought over the city of Jerusalem than any other city on earth. Even today, conflict surrounds the city, and yet Jerusalem is still God's city. It's a strategic peace in God's plan for the end of the age. And folks who love the Lord, folks who love God's people Israel will pray for the peace of Jerusalem. In Psalm 123, the psalmist needs an attitude adjustment. His eyes are on the Lord, but his heart is disturbed by the arrogance of the people around him. Psalm 124 helps him refocus. It recalls how God's people were often overtaken in the past with difficulty, and yet God was always faithful and true. He says, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. In other words, who knows what would have happened had the Lord not been with us, had the Lord not delivered us. There's been times in my life I can look back and say, Man, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, who knows? He's been faithful. In Psalm 125, the psalmist compares the person of faith with the city of God. He says, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion who cannot be moved. Psalm 126 reminds us of how quickly God can turn the tables. Verse 1 says, when the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion... We were like those who dream. You see, the Jews who were captive in Babylon thought that their exile would last forever. The Babylonian empire seemed invincible. And yet one night, the Persians dammed up the Euphrates River and they slipped under the walls of the city through the dried up riverbed. They literally conquered the city of Babylon without firing a shot. And one of the first decrees from the pen of the Persian ruler who took over was to allow the Jews to return to their homeland of Judah. The Jews couldn't believe it. It was actually happening. It was all like a dream. Hey, God can fulfill our dreams. God can turn our dreams into realities. They conclude in verse 5, Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. And that's often what happens when God intervenes on behalf of His people. Psalm 127 was written by the temple builder Solomon. And yet Solomon refuses to take credit for building the temple. He knew that his part was minor. If God hadn't been in it, he would have failed. He says, unless the Lord builds the house... They labor in vain who build it. Often church leaders forget this principle. They tend to trust in the latest method or gimmick or scheme rather than trusting in the Lord to build His church. If we're going to do anything of eternal value, God has to be in it. Yes, we always have a part to play. (laughs) But hey, trust me, our part is one-tenth of one percent compared to the part that God plays. Unless the Lord builds a house. They that labor, labor in vain. And that's why we're told in verse 2, it is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he gives his beloved sleep. If we're trusting God to do the work, then why stress out? Why burn the candle on both ends? Hey, go to sleep early tonight. Sleep in in the morning. If God has everything under control, then live like it. In verse 3, Solomon moves from buildings to babies. He says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is his reward. Parents need to treasure their kids. We need to always see them as a gift, as a blessing, as a reward. It's been said children should be viewed as valuable additions, not needed deductions. The psalmist says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Kids are a reward, but they're also a responsibility. You see, the bow and arrow was a breakthrough in ancient warfare. Suddenly, you could kill a man at a distance. Up until the advent of the bow and arrow, it was hand-to-hand combat. But with this new technology, you could now send your weapon on ahead. Do damage where you aren't personally involved. This should be the goal with our kids. I want my kids to go farther and to reach higher and to travel straighter than I've traveled. Often my kids will try to cop out, well, I'll bet when you were a kid, you did this or you, you did that. I'm quick to squelch. it. I'm up front with them. I tell them if they don't turn out better than me, I'll be hugely disappointed. My goal for them, my responsibility is to aim them in God's direction and then sail, send them sailing farther and higher than I've ever been. I hope they achieve so much more for God than I have. I hope they're much more godly a person than I am. I want them to be an arrow and go farther and higher than me. Now pilgrimage to Jerusalem was indeed a family affair, and the author of Psalm one hundred twenty eight again focuses on the family. He says of his wife in verse three, your wife shall be like a fruitful vine. Notice wives, a vine does three things it clings, it climbs, and it clusters. And here's what makes for a good wife. She clings to her husband. Wives, give your husband your time. Give him your attention. Give him your affections and your tenderness. Make him feel that he's important to you. And he'll love you in return. But also climb spiritually. Don't just live for your husband. Grow in the Lord. And your husband will not only love you, but he will respect you. And lastly, bear clusters. In other words, be a blessing to others, and your husband will not only love you and respect you, he will admire you, and he'll be proud of you. So to be a good wife, cling to your husband, climb in the Lord, and be a cluster that bears fruit for others. In verse 3, the psalmist also mentions kids. He says, your children are like olive plants. Understand, an olive tree is not the prettiest looking tree. In fact, it's quite ugly. Its trunk is all gnarled and twisted. And it takes years of cultivation before an olive tree ever bears fruit. But you know, if you're patient, and if you bear with the olive tree, and if you're careful to tend it correctly... It can be extremely productive. And so it is with our kids. We need to be patient. We need to love them through the gnarly moments. When they're a little ugly, we need to stick with them and love them and be patient with them. Finally, the man of the house is mentioned in this description of family life. Verse 4, it says, Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Dad, your job is to fear the Lord. Humble yourself. Walk in His ways. Make sure everyone in your family knows that you're under authority too. You're under the Lord's authority. Seek His wisdom. Fear the Lord, and your wife and children will have no fear in following you. Psalm 129 recalls the times in her past when Israel had been persecuted. Psalm 130 is a soothing psalm. It's a song of God's forgiveness. Verse 3 tells us, If you, Lord, should mark our iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Hey, guys, it's Santa Claus who's making a list and checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty and nice. If you're in Christ Jesus, God no longer tallies up your sin. He no longer keeps a record. It's all been washed and covered by the blood of Jesus. Psalm 131 is one of the shortest Psalms to read, but one of the longest Psalms to learn. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. In other words, the psalmist is saying, I've given up trying to know it all. I've accepted the limits of my logic. I have become content to trust God even when I can't explain Him, When, he, when even when I can't understand what He's doing in the situation. I'm content to trust Him because I know the Lord. So he explains his trust in verse 2. He says, Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. You see, a child weaned from his mother's milk is young enough... That he doesn't know very much. He's still a little kid. But there's one thing that he has learned. And that is that that his mom is faithful. That's why he's a weaned child. He's learned that his mom is faithful. That she'll be there. That she'll feed him what he needs when he needs it. And this is the conclusion that the psalmist has reached. He compares himself to a child that's been weaned. He didn't know much. He's accepted that. He's accepted that up against God, his brain's puny. But he also knows God's going to feed him what he needs, when he needs it. And he's come content to put his trust in God. Psalm 132 was sung by the pilgrims to celebrate God's covenant with King David. Psalm 133 is written by a pilgrim who's approaching Jerusalem. And he's getting excited, not only about the prospects of fellowshipping with God, but in coming to Jerusalem, he's going to get to renew fellowship and friendships with people that he may not have seen since the last time he was at Jerusalem. He's excited not only about spending time with God, but spending time with friends. And so he enters the temple court singing, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. There is comfort, there's joy, there's strength when God's people come together and stand as one together. Psalm 131 is a song for the night shift. A pilgrim arrives in Jerusalem after sunset. He could wait until morning to go to the temple, but man, he's so pumped to spend time in God's presence that he's got to go now. And so he enters the courts in the moonlight singing, Blessed be the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Psalm 135 is a mosaic of scripture. It's a composition of various other psalms. Psalm 136 is one of the nation Israel's favorite psalms. It was sung by Solomon at the temple's dedication. It was sung by King Jehoshaphat, remember, when he went out to battle, when the army went out to battle. And it was sung by the exiles when they rebuilt their temple in the book of Ezra. The song was probably sung responsively. The priest would read the first line, and then the people would all chime in on the chorus, for his mercy endures forever. In 586 BC, the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem. And they took the Jews into exile. It was in Babylon along the banks of the Euphrates River that one of the Jewish captors, captives was singing the blues. He had picked up his harp and he wrote Psalm 137. He begins, By the rivers of Babylon there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. Remember, God had brought Israel out of the land of Babylon When he called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. Now his descendants had returned there. It seems that their sin had reversed everything that God had done. That's why they're weeping. In verse three, the Babylonians tell the psalmist, hey, sing a happy song. But in verse four, he says, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. And this has been the prayer of the Jews for the last 1,900 years as they've lived scattered and dispersed across the world apart from their homeland. Commentator William Hislop wrote in reference to Psalm 139, Wickedness is always followed by weeping. They were in Babylon because of their backsliding and because of their sin. Sin eventually has its consequences. And Psalm 139 is a song... Of the backslider. Understand, for a time sin seems pleasurable. But now the psalmist is in a foreign land. He has tasted the consequences of the rebellion and he's weeping. He's saddened. It's been said life is full of splinters, but many of them we don't feel until we begin to slide backwards. Isn't that true? Psalm 138 verse 2 contains an incredible statement. For you have magnified your word above all your name. The Hebrews considered God's word to be their great, considered God's name to be their greatest treasure. It was the bedrock of their belief. You remember a man in the Old Testament in the days of Moses blasphemed the sacred name. And you remember what they did to him. Took him out and stoned him. But here, God exalts His Word even above His name. Isn't that interesting? That's the one thing God values more than His name. His Word. How much do you value the Word of God? If God exalts His Word even above His name, we should never be guilty of neglecting the Word. We should read it. We should study it. That should be our top priority. Psalm 139 is one of the most beautiful ballads of all time. Not only in the Bible, but in all literature. It speaks of the omnis of God. His omniscience. His omnipresence. His omnipotence. The psalm begins, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. In other words, God reads me like a book. God knows me. Nothing about me is hidden from God. Verse 7 says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Hey, ascend as high as heaven, descend as low as hell. In either case, God is there. The psalmist says there's no escaping the presence of God. That reminds me of the pastor who tried to help reform the little boy who had a problem stealing items from the drugstore. But before he got into counseling, the little boy first wanted to test his Bible knowledge. And so the pastor asked the boy, Johnny, where is God? Johnny just sort of shrugged. And so the pastor asked him again, Johnny, where is God? Johnny remained silent. The pastor was upset that the little boy wouldn't even answer him, so he kind of shouted, Johnny, where is God? Johnny jumps up. He runs out of his office, down the stairs, all the way back home, runs up the stairs, goes into his room, into his closet, slams the door behind him. Of course, his mom wants to know what's wrong. And little Johnny, from the inside of the closet, shouts out, Mommy, The people at church have lost God and they think I stole him. God is not lost. God is not stolen. God is everywhere at all times. God is omnipresent. Where can I go from his spirit? Nowhere. David says in verses 13 through 15, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. The phrase, the lowest parts of the earth, is another way of denoting the sacredness and the mystery of the mother's womb. Notice though, long before the psalmist was born, the Lord oversaw his formation and his development. As far as God was concerned, the psalmist was valued as a viable human, not just from the moment of his conception. Verse 16 implies that even before his conception, God had a plan for his life, how he would spend his days. At two weeks, a baby has a discernible heartbeat. At 43 days, detectable brain waves. At six and a half weeks, the baby moves. At nine weeks, the baby has a unique set of fingerprints. Its sex is apparent. Its kidneys are formed and functioning. At 12 weeks, all the baby's organs are in operation, and the baby can even cry. And all this development takes place in the first trimester of the mother's pregnancy. I'm convinced, both biblically and medically, that abortion as birth control is nothing but murder. Verse 17 says, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. I should count them. They would be more in number than the sand. Every time I go to the beach, I always pick up a handful of sand and I let each of the grains of sand sort of trickle through my fingers. And I try to count them. And of course I can't. And I remember this verse, that God's thoughts toward me Are more than the grains of sand. Along the beach. He must love me. What do you think? He must love me. And oh he must love you as well. I used to have a little. Vial of sand that sat on my desk. And every time I would get discouraged. I'd pick up that little vial of sand. And I'd just kind of turn it over. And try to count the. Grains of sand and. It would just hit me, man, Sandy, God really cares for you. He really does love you. If his thoughts toward you are more than the sands along the beach. Psalm 140 through 143 are all written by David while in dire straits. He cries out in Psalm 140 verse 4, Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have purpose to make my steps stumble. All of us would do well to pray David's prayer in Psalm 143 verse 3. Set a guard, I'm sorry, verse 141 verse 3. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. In other words, watch what you say. For once a word slips out of the lips, you can never get it back, can you? It's gone. In Psalm 140, David is worried about the lying tongue of his enemy. In Psalm 141, his concern is his own tongue. And both slander and our own slips can be a problem for us. I like what David says in verse 5. Let the righteous strike me, it shall be a kindness. And let him rebuke me, it shall be as excellent oil. In other words, the wise person knows how to handle constructive criticism. Can other people criticize you? Can you take it? Do you take it? Or do you get mad and angry and put up that defense? I think a successful person is a person who can take constructive criticism and learn from it. It's been said, the trouble with most of us is that we would rather be ruined by praise than saved by criticism. Psalm 142 is a contemplation of David, a prayer when he was in the cave. And we know that David lived in two caves, for a time in the cave of Adullam near his hometown of Bethlehem, and then for a time in a cave while he was at the oasis of En Either scenario would fit well the context of Psalm 142. David feels alone in this psalm. He feels abandoned, but he knows that the Lord is his refuge. Throughout Psalm 143, David cries for God to be active in his life. Notice what he says. Hear me, answer me, cause me, deliver me, teach me, lead me, revive me. So often in difficult circumstances, the focus of my prayer is for God to change my circumstances. But David wants God to change him. Not necessarily his circumstances. So often I can fail to ask God to do the real vital work, and that's to change me. Lord, do your work in me needs to be my first prayer before I ever get to my circumstances. Psalm 144 depicts a hearty, healthy, happy faith. The psalm is David's battle plan. Foreigners have invaded the land, and the king calls on God to intervene to save his people. In fact, that seems to be his only plan, but to lean on God. For the Lord is his rock. Psalm 145 is also an acrostic. Verse 3 sums up the psalm. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Now this long stream of psalms has meandered along now for 145 chapters. Like a wide flowing long mighty river. For miles and miles, it's been navigated by the believer who wants to know God. But it's traveled through diverse landscapes. We've had ups and downs, joys and sorrows, love and hate, faith and fear, loyalty and betrayal. We've seen pleasure and pain. Glory and grief has stricken our hearts, satisfaction and frustration we've talked about. But as this river of Psalms now reaches its end, its banks begin to narrow and the river picks up power and its intensity grows and the water begins to boil and all the passions and the pathos that have been expressed in this psalm suddenly turn into an avalanche of praise in these last five psalms. Guys, all life's journeys eventually culminate in the praise of God. Praise is the purpose for which we were created. Praise is where all of life is eventually headed. The sorrows, the joys are all leading us to that moment when we realize that God is the answer to all our problems and our hearts erupt with the angels in eternal praise and worship of God. It's interesting, each of these last five chapters begin and end with the word Hallelujah or praise the Lord. And we call Psalms 146 through 150 the Hallelujah Psalms. Psalm 146 describes the Lord's kindness toward the underdog, the blind, the lame, the orphan, the widow. The psalmist says in verse 9, but the way of the wicked he turns upside down. God can turn the tables on the wicked in a heartbeat. Psalm 147 tells us that God counts the stars. He even names them. Verse 5 says, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. The remainder of the psalm calls on the city of Jerusalem to praise the Lord. Psalm 148 is called the song of purest praise. For in this psalm, you won't find one plea, not one petition, not one prayer. There is nothing in this psalm but the purest praise. It calls for all creation to join in praising the Lord. Let all heaven and earth, the psalmist says, The sea, the sky, the land, the flora, the fauna, the kings and peasants, old men and children, all should join together in the praise of God. C.H. Spurgeon once wrote of this psalm, Does not all nature around me praise God? If I were silent, I would be an exception to the universe. Does not the thunder praise Him? Does not the mountains praise Him? Does not the lightning write His name in letters of fire? Has not the whole earth a voice? And shall I, can I, be silent? Psalm 148 proves that all nature walks to the drumbeat of praise. Are you in step? Psalm 149 tells us, Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise His name with the dance. Let them sing praises to Him with the timbrel and harp. For the Lord takes pleasure in His people. The world sees our praises inconsequential, but not heaven, no. All heaven knows the significance of our praise. For God takes pleasure in His people when they worship Him. We're going to read Psalm 150. but. Why don't we stand to do so? Psalm 150. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty firmament. Praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him. With the sound of the trumpet Praise Him with the lute and harp Praise Him with the timbrel and dance Praise Him with the stringed instruments and the flutes Praise Him with the loud cymbals Praise Him with the clashing cymbals. Let everything that have breath praise the Lord. Let's say it together. Praise the Lord.